This morning, we are closing out a series in the first three chapters of Romans called Revealed. And this morning, we're looking at verses 21 through 31. And the last five weeks, uh, we hung out in chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 20 of chapter 3. And Paul has been showing us over and over again over those five weeks the common problem that humanity shares. That we have sinned against God. We have broken his law. We have broken his rules. Uh, we have, we've talked about how we've rebelled against him and replaced him in our hearts. That we've all done this. That all of humanity, Jew or Gentile, no matter, no matter the race, no matter the nationality, no matter your background, no matter your denomination, whether you're religious or irreligious, we all share the same problem, and that is that we are sinners. We are all in the same boat, and the boat is sinking. And today, in verses 21 through 26, Paul goes into great detail, and then all really we're going to be looking all the way through verse 31, uh, of explaining what God has done to solve this great problem in great detail. Uh, the first paragraph here, verses 21 through 26, has been called the most important text in all the Bible by some. One commentator pointed out a quote from Martin Luther, the great reformer, who said of this paragraph, he called it the chief point of the whole Bible. And I have to say, uh, I mean, Romans chapter 8 is probably the greatest chapter in the Bible. The greatest paragraph, though, is probably found right here in Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. See, if, if our hearts do not grasp this passage, then our souls are forever in trouble. Our souls swing on the truth of these verses and whether our hearts grasp it or not. All of humanity has this problem that we've talked about, about, about sin. And we largely walk around not thinking about the problem, right? We do life, we raise our kids, we go to work, we go play, and we don't spend a lot of time thinking deeply about sometimes anything at all, much less the deep things of life or about God and about eternity and whether there is a God. And if so, what is our relationship like with him? And in fact, uh, there, there's no greater thing that you can think about and, and to know for sure than where do I stand with God? Am I right with God? Am I in right relationship with God? But we don't tend to think deeply many times in our culture about anything. We tend to react. We tend to many times busy ourselves and go through the motions of life and not pause and reflect. In fact, I was reading an article this week in the New York Times about smartphone usage. And the author was writing about how he had been weaning himself off his phone. He felt that he was addicted to his iPhone, so he was weaning himself off of it. And he employed an expert who had studied and written a book on how the brain interacts with smartphones. And this expert, she told him to not be surprised if he experienced existential thoughts and depression as he weaned himself off his smartphone. It's like, what? You know? Like, why is that? It's because... She was, her point was, we tend to numb ourselves, even with something like that, with information or games and even communication to the point we rarely think deeply. And if you find yourself thinking deeply for the first time in a while, you might find yourself going down a dark path even if you don't have something to cling to. See, the Bible wants us to pause. It wants us to turn off the phone and to think deeply about the things that matter most and nothing matter most then. Am I right with God? Where do I stand with God? And you know, we all have in our cars, we have our dashboard with all of the little check engine light and the oil light and the brake light and all these different things. And if something's wrong with the car, right, it gives us a light. And we know we need to take it somewhere. We need to pop the hood, figure out what's going on and get it fixed. It gives us all these indicators. And in Romans, the first three chapters, Paul has been setting off the indicator lights on your dashboard and on my dashboard. And now he's going to tell us what, need, what has been done to resolve the issues, right? And these verses 21 through 31, especially 21 through 26, gets to the heart of the matter. So we're going to read, 
starting in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, and I'm going to read down through verse 31. So walk with me. It's on the screen for you if you do not have the text. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Apostle Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. But what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So, Hand back up with me there to verse 21. Paul says these two magical words, but now. Now remember, in chapter 3, Paul had told us the human race we saw last week is under sin. We're, apart from Christ, we are enslaved to sin. We are trapped. We are captives underneath the weight of sin. We, 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 we stand to endure the penalty of our sin. We are captive to the power of our sin. We are overcome by the daunting presence of our sin. And in Verse 20, he told us the law that God sent, God gave through Moses, gave us the, gave humanity and gave the Jews in particular the knowledge of sin. In other words, it didn't give us a way to overcome sin. It didn't give us a way to be forgiven of sin. It just made us realize how guilty we are and to show us that we're sinners and that there needed to be something done about our sin. That's our great problem. How can a people under sin, enslaved to, incapable of keeping God's rules, how can we be made right with a holy God? And then Paul says, but now. And those two words change everything. Something has been done to make it possible for humanity, Jew or Gentile, to be right with God. Paul says the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law. In other words, God's righteous act of saving his people has been manifested, revealed, apart from the law. But the law and the prophets, he says, the Old Testament, bear witness to this. In other words, it's not something new that God had pulled out of his hat at the last minute. But this is, this is something that the entire Old Testament was pointing us toward and looking to. The Old Testament bore witness to it from Abraham believing God and it being counted to him as righteousness. To King David penning Psalm 22 about being forsaken by God, which was of the Messiah. To Isaiah on our behalf to Isaiah penning Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant being crushed and it pleasing the Lord to crush him. 
Him bearing our chastisement, bearing our sin and our punishment. The Old Testament was pointing to this revealing, pointing ahead to the Messiah. Think about the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament. For sin to be atoned for, there had to be a sacrifice. The fact that it was, it had to be one, it had to be one without blemish. It had to be offered by a certain person only who had been marked and set aside to make these sacrifices. All of this was pointing to Christ and to the gospel and our need for a sinless sacrifice and one worthy to both be the sacrifice and to offer the sacrifice and all those things were being reconciled in Christ who is both the Lamb of God and our great high priest. And there are three big ideas really in this text to help us understand the one big idea of how sinners can be made right with God. And all three are critical to understanding how you and I can be right with God. So here's the first one. First big idea. Number one, God justifies sinners through Christ alone. Okay? Or we're made right with God and justified. We're justified through Christ alone. He says there's no distinction for all of sin, verses 22 and 23, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Right? And he says it's through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. He said God putting forth his propitiation by his blood. All these big words, right? And they have deep, important meanings. Right? He says we all have the same problem. We've talked about that. No distinctions, you or Gentile. We've sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Very well-known verse. He's hearkening to the idea that we're created for God's glory, that we have fallen short of God's glory, and that we don't image our creator like we're supposed to. We're created in God's image for his glory. We're supposed to represent him, resemble him some ways, steward his earth in the way he'd have us to, and to point and to, to reflect our creator. But we don't do that as well as we should because of our sin. We've, we've fallen short of the very purpose for which God has created us, for his glory. And he says, but we're justified by grace through redemption in Jesus who was put forth as a propitiation. And that's the heart of the matter. How can we be made right with God? Well, that's what justified is all about. The word justified means declared righteous. Declared righteous. See, we fall short, we sin, but we know God is what? He is righteous. We are unrighteous, He is righteous. And to be right with God, to be righteous in His eyes, we have to be made righteous. See, the problem with unrighteousness, Paul told us in Romans 1.18, is that God's wrath is revealed against it. And now he tells us that the way to righteousness has been revealed, and it's that we be, it's through faith in Christ. He says we're justified, declared righteous. Okay, you can insert that phrase there whenever you see that. We're justified, we're declared righteous by grace through redemption. Now that word redemption carries the idea of deliverance. It was used in their day of purchasing a slave. Scholars point out how Paul is calling to mind the Exodus. How, you remember the story of the Exodus, the, 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 the Jewish people, the nation of Israel was enslaved to Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. And God decides he's going to set his people free. And you remember he, he sends Moses and Aaron and time and time again, they warn Pharaoh, let my people go, right? And he won't let them go and the plagues come. And then he gets to the last plague and they, Pharaoh finally gives in. It was the plague of the death of the firstborn. And that the firstborn in every home, firstborn son, was going to, to die. God was going to make a distinction between his people and Egypt. God was taking a sign, right, so to speak. He was saying, or he was marking who was on his side, his people. 
And he says, I'm going to make this distinction. He tells Israel, he says, now listen, you need to sacrifice a lamb, and then you need to take the blood, and you need to put it over the doorpost of your home so that when my wrath comes, it passes over you. It lands on the Egyptians, but it doesn't land on your homes. And so they did that. And not a single Jewish person lost a firstborn. But every single one of the Egyptians did, including Pharaoh. They had been passed over. And that's from there they instituted the Passover to remember that God's wrath had passed them over. And so when he says redemption that has been found in Christ, he's hearkening to that when they were brought out of slavery. Not just the slave market that they might would have seen, but hey, we, our people were once slaves. And we have been brought out of slavery. How did God do that? And they would have remembered the Passover, and he, they would have remembered the lamb being slain and the blood over the doorpost. And he says, that is now found in Christ. He is the Passover lamb. It's by his blood now that God's wrath passes over us and doesn't fall on us. Paul is saying in Christ, a price has been paid. Our debt has been paid in full. And rather than give us a zero account, God has declared us righteous. He's given us the abundance of Christ's righteousness. See, that's what justified means. It doesn't just mean you're no longer in Christ unrighteous. You're no longer unrighteous. It means you're declared righteous. It's so much weaker to think of it as that, hey, in Christ, I'm not unrighteous anymore. No, 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 no. You're more than that. In Christ, you are righteous. See, it's, it's not just a zero account. You went from having an unpayable sin debt, if you're in Christ this morning, to a massive, infinite credit of righteousness. Imagine for a moment if you had an outstanding debt of $100 million. Be overwhelming. You just, what, file bankruptcy? Then you get a call that the debt is gone. And you go, wow. I mean, the first thing you would think is, who paid it, right? That's the first place your mind would go. Who paid it? You'd realize that someone had to pay for that to happen. Debt doesn't just go away. The Bible tells us in Proverbs that sometimes money will take up wings and fly away, but debt don't do that, right? You have to pay down debt. It doesn't take up wings and fly away. Money does, sometimes because of debt. But you'd be like, who paid the debt? But then you find out there's better and there's even more news. Not only do you not longer, you don't just have a zero ledger here. But you have a credit. You, you have a credit above and beyond that you, than, than your debt ever was. Here's my point. Apostle Paul is showing us that in Christ, yes, God wipes the sinner's debt clean. But even more than that, he declares you righteous. He gives you the righteousness of Christ. You have been declared righteous upon the righteous standing of Jesus. You don't go from unrighteous to even. You go from unrighteous to righteous. And Paul tells us in el elsewhere that it's Christ's righteousness that you're closing. Listen. God is infinitely and eternally holy and just. And when you and I sin against him, whether it's one time or a bazillion times, we are infinitely guilty, eternally guilty with infinite eternal debt. That's why hell is forever. People say, I have trouble because, you know, you sin a limited number of times. How can hell be forever? It's not about the number of times you've sinned. It's about who you've sinned against. You've sinned against an infinitely holy and eternal God. But the good news is, is that Christ's righteousness is infinite and eternal too. He lived a sinless life. And from eternity past to eternity present to eternity future, he is righteous forever. And God made the believer in Christ righteous like Jesus is righteous. 
He looks on you with the, the righteousness of Christ. So questions like that a believer might ask, a new believer might ask, like, what kind of sin would I commit that would make me lose my salvation? How much sin can make me lose my salvation? It's just a preposterous question. Listen, your righteousness is not what secured your salvation. You didn't write the check out of your account, so therefore you can't bounce the check. It has nothing to do with your righteousness. It has everything to do with Christ's righteousness. The question is always, am I in Christ? Have I been saved? Not, can I lose it? It has nothing to do with your performance. It has everything to do with what Christ has done. The next big word he uses is propitiation. He says God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. That word propitiation carries the idea of an appeasement of wrath is what it means in the Greek. It was also the word used in the Greek to describe the mercy seat. Now, I'll tell you a little bit about the mercy seat. The mercy seat in the Old Testament was the, the gold platform, the gold covering that, that laid over the top of the Ark of the Covenant and is where the priest would sprinkle blood from the sacrificial lamb on the Day of Atonement as he sought forgiveness for the sins of the people. And he say, one thing he, I believe he does want us to see is that Christ is the person who has replaced the place. The, the, the cross is the place of atonement now. There's a person of atonement. It is Christ. And atonement for sin is found in him. And the way that happened is he is the one who has appeased the wrath of God and turned it to favor. You know, in Romans 1.18, Paul told us that the wrath of God was what? Revealed against unrighteousness. So the problem that Paul has presented in the first three chapters is not just that we're sinners. It's that we're sinners that stand under the wrath and can stand condemned and, and soon to one day bear the wrath of a holy and just God. And we tend to think about that, and we sometimes, in our humanness, we tend to equate that with like our wrath. And you can't think of your wrath and God's wrath as the same. Your wrath and my wrath are tainted by sin, right? God's not some angry parent yelling at his kid at Walmart for putting stuff in the buggy. Right? He's not some, you know, flying off the handle, right? He's not some angry teenager slamming the door and stuff. That, that's not the picture at all, right? No, no, no. God's wrath is holy. It's righteous. It, it is just. It's not flavored or sprinkled with any sin or unrighteousness. Ours usually is. And so we can't really think about it compared to our wrath. It's perfectly righteous indignation. And the only way you can have a wrathless God is to have an unjust God. See, if God's truly just, and if he always does what's right, then he has to be a God who punishes what is wicked, what is evil. And so if we do away with his wrath, we do away with his justice. His justice. And so the Bible presents God, no, 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 he's a God of justice, and he is a God of wrath. And it tells us here the good news that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation, as an appeasement for wrath, to satisfy his wrath and to turn it to favor for his people. See, what was happening on the cross is not just surface level. It's about more than the nails and the thorns that went into his flesh. We could talk all day about how painful the cross was, and it was excruciating. And we certainly never want to make light of that. Yet a lot of people died on the cross in the past. Many people. Two people died on the cross the same day Jesus did, beside him, on his left and on his right. 
But see, Jesus was the sinless son of God who on the cross experienced the wrath of God for us and turned it to favor. A lot more was happening on that cross than what the physical eye beholds. Think for a moment. Why did Jesus sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane? You ever read the Gospels and wondered why Jesus is in, in, in the Garden and he's praying? And the Bible says he's under so much stress that drops of blood, it's like he begin to pour forth. It's, it's, it's like he's it, it, painting this picture of, of just this weight that is upon him. And people go, oh, it's because he's about to go to the cross. Well, I don't know. Was, was, was the thief sweating drops of blood? that would hang next to him on the cross? Jesus actually prays while he's in there, while he's sweating the drops of blood. He gives us a clue. He says, Father, if it would be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, what? Not my will, but yours. If it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Why does he talk? Let this cup pass from me. And so, it, Well, is, is he talking about the suffering of the cross? Is he talking about the pain, the cat of nine tails? What's he talking about? Let me tell you what he's talking about. He, he wants us to know, Psalm 75, 8, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Jeremiah 25, Isaiah 51, all these reference the cup, and the cup is the cup of divine wrath, the cup of God's wrath. And the New Testament teaches us that Jesus took the cup of God's wrath, the cup that we deserve, the cup of wrath that we deserve, to drink it so that we wouldn't have to experience it for all of eternity. He, he turned it up and he experienced the wrath of God and he bore our judgment so that you and I would not have to experience it for eternity. In fact, all who believe in Christ will never have to experience a single drop, not even an inkling of the wrath of God. Oh, sure, he'll discipline us for our sins. But his righteous indignation for your sin fell on Christ if you're in him. So how is Jesus the propitiation that God put him forth? He turns God's wrath to favor. He took the cup. He took the cup. And believer, at the end of this service today, you're going to take the cup of communion, representing the, the shed blood of Christ that he shed to enact a new and better covenant, for you to have a relationship with God. And you can take the cup enjoying communion with God and his people because Jesus took the cup that you were supposed to take, that you should have taken, that you deserve to take. And he's given us a cup of blessing. He's given us a cup of fellowship. He's given us a cup of communion. He's given us a cup of grace. He's given us a cup of mercy that we can partake in because and only because he took the cup of wrath. And he drained it down, as the psalmist says, to the dregs. You know, we sometimes say salvation's free. It's free for the sinner who receives it, but it's not free. It costs the sinless Son of God infinitely more than we can imagine. It's only free because the price has been paid. Remember, somebody had to pay the debt. What do you call something free that hasn't been paid for? Stolen. Salvation wasn't stolen, it was bought and paid for, and now it's offered to us in Christ. These words, redemption, propitiation, tell us what God has done in Jesus to be able to declare sinners like you and I righteous. 
See, in Christ, God does what a judge could never do. A judge can declare you guilty if you're guilty. He can declare you not guilty if you're not guilty. He can get it wrong and declare you not guilty if you're guilty or declare you guilty if you're not guilty. But you know what he can't do? He can't take a guilty person and declare them righteous. There's only one judge that can do that. And the only reason he can do that is because he put forth his son as a propitiation, an appeasement for his wrath, satisfied his justice. But see, there's a problem here. How can God justify a sinner and still consider himself just and righteous? And that's the second big idea. In Christ, God is shown to be righteous. As Paul says, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you go back up to verse 25, he says, this was to show God's righteousness, his justice, his holiness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul says that God is, what God has done in Christ, the justification of sinners, this redemption, this propitiation, was to show God's righteousness. Declare his holiness. Declare his justice. He says God had passed over former sins. He didn't mean that God had swept it under the rug. That's not the point. But that rather God in his mercy and in his love had not tossed us all aside in hell like we deserve. He didn't just do over, right? But rather God looked ahead and knew that there was going to be a day that he was going to, at the right moment in time, his son was going to come into the world, take on human flesh, go to, live a sinless life, go to the cross, and die for sinners. And that sinners would be able to be justified, and God would be declared just, because justice had failed on the son. And Jesus would do this willingly. And in the present time, in the here and now, Paul wants us to know that you can look at the cross and know God is both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, God can't willy-nilly forgive sin. He can't just roll his eyes at it and go, again, you know. They're doing it again, right? They sinned again. Oh, well, it's not, it's, it's just, he can't do that. He can't brush it under the rug. He can't toss it aside. If he says it's not a big deal, then he's no longer holy. He's no longer righteous. He's no longer the God of the Bible. In fact, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, this is how God revealed himself to Moses in the Old Testament. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Let me ask you something. How is it? That he can forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, but not clear the guilty, if we're all guilty. How can he, how can he be forgiving and not, declare, and, not, and not clear the guilty? It's like they've called it the riddle of the Bible. And it's answered in Jesus. And it's explained in Romans 3. The way he can do that is Jesus, who died in such a way that God is declared just and you and I can be declared righteous. In that sense, Jesus didn't just die for sinners, as they said. Jesus died for God. So that God is declared and shown to be what he's always been, which is righteous and just. Let me ask you what happens in our justice system. If there's a heinous crime and someone 
who everyone thinks or maybe even obviously knows is guilty gets off on a technicality. There's an outcry, right? People would, maybe would even march in the streets, and rightfully so, and when someone commits a crime against humanity and walks, right, it's, it's normal and it's, it's that we would cry out for justice and say, man, that's not just. Well, how much more so does the justice of God cry out for justice? And Jesus has satisfied those righteous requirements. So things like how can God be loving and a God of wrath? How can God be a God of grace and a God of justice? God's love, his grace, his justice, his righteousness, his wrath are all reconciled at the cross. They kiss, they, they mingle at the cross. At the cross, sin is judged in Jesus. Wrath is poured out on sin. This was done as an act of love and grace so that God is shown just and sinners can be justified. Now here's the thing. While at the cross, God is shown to be just and the justifier, it's only the one who has faith in Jesus who experiences justification, redemption, and forgiveness. That's number three. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone. Being declared righteous by God is by grace alone, through faith alone. Verse 22, he said the righteousness of God was what? Through faith in Jesus Christ. For who? All who believe. Verse 24, he said we're justified by grace as a gift. Verse 25, he said God put forward him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received. How? By faith. Verse 26, so that he might be just in the justifier of who? The one who has faith in Jesus. Faith, belief, grace. This passage drips with it. And Paul defines grace for us, in a sense, in verse 24, as a gift, right? We're justified by God's grace as a gift. Grace means it's unmerited favor. It means we can't earn it. There's nothing we can do to achieve it, but it has to be given. See, we struggle with this in our culture, the idea of, of grace. This is America. You earn stuff. You work for it. We're self-made. Then we brag about it. You read somebody's biography or autobiography. They came from nothing. They worked their way up. Nothing was handed to them. They had to work for it all. Walk 20 miles uphill to school both ways, right? Self-made man, self-made woman, American dream, equal opportunity, but you got to go get it. Go make a life for yourself. And in fact, if we feel like someone didn't earn it, we say, oh, they were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Everything was given to them, and we, and we diss them, and we disrespect them for them. It's human nature, and it's in our cultural blood to want to earn and to want to work to earn things and to stick our chest out a little further. It's the way we naturally think, and our whole system is wired around this. You go to work, you get paid. You go to school and study, you pass the grade. And then we come to the Bible, and we naturally assume that salvation would work the same way. And Paul says, if you want to be made righteous in the eye, declared righteous in the eyes of God, if you want to be justified, if you want to be forgiven of your sin and in good standing with God, it only happens by grace as a gift that you can't earn. And see, the, the difference, we say this around here a lot, between biblical Christianity, the gospel, and just dead religion is do versus done. Religion says do this and you'll be loved. Do this and God will accept you. Do this and you'll be recognized by him. Do this and you will be justified. Do this and you will be forgiven. That's what religion says. But biblical Christianity, the gospel says, Christ has done this. Therefore, by faith, receive it. 
See, Paul says the only way the gift of grace can be applied to our account is by faith. In other words, what has been done by Christ has to be applied to our account by faith. It is through faith for those who believe, he says. It's, it is received by faith. It is taken in by faith. We have to take God at his word. We have to believe God's promise. Now, the Bible tells us elsewhere that even that's a gift from God. But the point is that that's how it's applied to our account. We have to believe. It's been explained that you know, faith is like the funnel that God's grace pours through in our life. It's how we receive it. See, what needs to be done has already been done. We just need to take hold of it. And if we're to take hold of it by works or by keeping the law, by baptism or church involvement or doing charity, then what are we really doing? We're adding to what's been done. But we simply need to, to reach out with arms of faith, the Bible tells us, and to grab hold of it. That's what we do when we believe on Christ. And Paul tells us, see, it's all, it's, it's, and this proves that it's not about us, that it's about Jesus. And that's very humbling. Look at verses 27 through 28 again. He says, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? Or what kind of principle? There's another translation of that. There he's not talking about the law, capital L. He's talking about the principle of works. He says, what kind of law? By law of works? No, by the law of faith. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. No works, including works of the law, can save. It's not by keeping the law or being moral or doing good deeds that one is justified. It's only by faith. And this eliminates human boasting. See, if it's about our doing, then there's reason to boast. If it's about Christ having done, then all you can boast in is Jesus. See, I've learned this with our kids. They, they love to boast, right? They do something. They want, to, they want to hang it on the refrigerator, right? Look what I made you. Do you like it? Yeah, right? Hey, where is it? You know, they'll ask. Why is it over here? Why is it in this drawer? Why is it not hanging up over here? Right? They, they don't want you to put it out there. Want to hear me count to 100? Sure. Yeah. It's human nature. When we do something, there's natural swagger that comes with that. We get this in sports. We talk about the swagger of a quarterback in football. We talk about the confidence in yourself it takes to be great at sports. We don't like cocky players, but we understand there's, there's a level of swagger, a level of confidence that just kind of comes with the territory. In fact, some of the most famous moments in American sports history are pretty braggadocious. Joe Namath for the New York Jets in the 60s predicting a Super Bowl win. Babe Ruth calling his home run shot that people talk about to this day. Michael Jordan shrugging and grinning as he hits shot after shot in the NBA Finals. And we, we immortalize these people and because we understand that when you do something, especially something great, there's just a level of boasting that comes with that. And See, when you're good and when you accomplish, you can boast, you can swagger, you can talk about it. But Paul tells us none of us are good. Remember Romans 3, first part, last week? None of us are good. And he says the only way we can be declared righteous by God is by grace as a gift. In other words, we have no reason to stick our chest out, no reason to boast. No, we don't get to strut into the batter box, so to say. We, we don't get to call our shot. We don't get to walk around with, a, with our chest out. That's not the, the posture of the Christian. We understand we did nothing. Christ did it all. Faith is humbling. The gospel is humbling, and it means I have to stop popping my chest out and realizing that I'm not all I'm cracked up to be, that, that I'm, I'm a sinner that needs a Savior, and I've rested in him to save me from my sin. 
Paul says in verse 29, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. See, Paul's saying the very fact that God, there's only one God. And that there's not a God for this nation and this nation or God for the Jew and the God for the Gentiles. There's only one God. Points to the idea of this, of this idea that you're, you're justified by, by faith and not by keeping the works of the law. God, there's only one way to be reconciled to God. And we're not overthrowing the law by this faith, he says. No means. On the contrary, we're upholding the law. See, this put, in other words, Paul says it puts the law in its proper place. The law was never meant to save. The law was never meant for you to think, if I do this, that's all it takes, and I'll be right with God. Now, it was always by, God counted Abraham's faith. We'll see next week according to him according to righteous, as righteousness. No, no, no. It, he says we, we uphold the law. We, we put it in its proper place that we see that the law is to point us to Jesus. It's to, it's to point us to our need for a Savior. And in fact, we can only begin to obey God from the heart once we've been justified by his grace through faith and are given a new heart in Jesus. Paul has made it clear in the first three chapters of Romans that, that yes, we are all sinners. That's bad news in the eyes of a just and holy God. We've broken his rules. We need rescue. We need to be declared righteous because we're unrighteous. We need to be justified so that we're not held guilty for our sin on judgment day and sentenced to a Christless eternity suffering for our sin justly if we're, if we're to escape that wrath, that something has to be done. And Paul has made it clear. Jesus has come, paid our sin debt on the cross, died in our place, bearing our sin, absorbing the wrath of God for us, and turning that wrath to favor. And when we, and only when we, turn from our sin and place our faith in Christ, can we be justified before God and declared righteous. It's only, only we can only be justified by grace alone, through faith alone. And in a moment, believer, we're going to take the Lord's Supper, communion together. And this is for those who have trusted in Christ alone for salvation. If you haven't done that, I just, if you say, man, that's not me, I'm not there yet, then just let that cup and let that bread pass by you. But believer, this is what we remember today, that Jesus Christ died in our place. Jesus in our place. Our sin traded for his righteousness. He drank the cup of God's wrath. So we can take this cup that reminds us that we've been accepted. And if you have not placed your faith in Christ alone today, if you've not rested in the grace of God shown to you in Christ Jesus by faith alone, if that's not your experience, I want to invite you today to come to Christ. To no longer focus on what you've done, but to get your eyes on what Christ has done and to rest in Him. Let's pray.